New Thinking Aloud, conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be exploring the legacy of Manly P. Hall and his classic masterpiece, The Secret Teachings of All Ages. My guest is Mitch Horowitz. He is the author of more than a dozen books, including The Miracle Club, How Thoughts Become Reality. Occult America, White House Seances, Ouija Circles, Masons, and The Secret History of Our Nation. One Simple Idea, How Positive Thinking Reshaped Modern Life. Magician of the Beautiful, An Introduction to Neville Goddard, and The Seeker's Guide to the Secret Teachings of All Ages. Mitch is in New York, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Mitch. I'm very happy to be back with you once again. Likewise. Great to be here, Jeff. We're going to be talking about one of the most fascinating people in American esoteric history, Manly P. Hall, and of course, his classic book, The Secret Teachings of All Ages. I know you were involved initially, in, as I recall, as a, I think an editor for Tarcher, helping to bring that uh, book into popular uh, print. Yeah. Uh, back in my publishing days, I discovered the secret teachings of all ages in the early 2000s. And I got the idea that the book should be formatted in what I called a reader's edition, which was a standard trade paperback uh, trim size with the complete unabridged text. And the man who was president of uh, Manley's organization, the Philosophical Research Society in Los Angeles, Obadiah Harris, gave me permission to proceed. And it was in the day before we had all of the digital technology that's available to us now. And in short, I had the entire book uh, retypeset, all glorious quarter million words of it, which probably brought more readers to the book in the space of a few years than had read it uh, throughout Manley's lifetime. It was originally published, as I recall, in about 1928. 1928, Manly P. Hall was all of 27 years old. And this 27-year-old young man with no formal schooling, with, who had actually spent very little time in classrooms at all growing up, he bopped around with his grandmother in the American West, was very rarely enrolled in any, any formal schooling. And of course, with none of the resources available to him, anything remotely like what what we know uh, uh, today, managed to assemble what is widely regarded as a master encyclopedia of all things esoteric, supernatural, symbolical, myth-related. And the book itself, the original uh, 1928 edition, is this tabletop-sized book filled with all kinds of graphics and charts and magnificent illustrations, it can look as alien uh, to the eye as a page of Babylonian Talmud. And and it's just a masterful labyrinth that you fall into. And one of the enduring mysteries of Manly P. Hall's life is how, at so young an age, he was able to produce a magisterial work. P. 
people sometimes uh, suggest that Manley must have had past lifetimes, that he was sort of, uh, all of this knowledge just seemed to emerge in him spontaneously. But as I recall from your book, uh, you suggest that there was a point in his life where everything changed. I think it was after he wrote his first book. Yes. He put out a a very small book, maybe it was 20,000 words or so, in 1922 called Initiates of the Plane. And he was a very young man at this time. I mean, he was really um, you know, just, just entering his 20s. And he had attracted some benefactors in Los Angeles and was able to do some traveling, was able to visit some of the reference libraries that were just opening for public use at that time, the New York Public Library and the British Library in London. And Initiates of the Flame, even though it was a very short book, had something magical about it. I'm I'm actually working on relaunching a new definitive edition of that book right now. It was basically a microcosm of the secret teachings of all ages. It analyzed various aspects of mythical religion, encompassing of the Holy Grail, uh, the Pentagram, the Star of David, the Obelisk, the Pyramid. The book was really composed of just little essays uh, that that examined different aspects of esoteric symbolism and their meaning. And something seemed to open up for Manley at that moment. There was the emergence from a, a chrysalis or you know something of that nature. And it's difficult to say just what it was. You know, I think I mean one could always speculate about past lives and or more material things like a photographic memory, if there is such a thing. But I think somehow, and I write about this in, in an introduction to uh, an anthology of Manley's works that I recently published called the secret history of America. I revisit this in the seeker's guide to the secret teachings of all ages. Somehow I think Manley's prodigiousness as as an independent scholar, as a writer, as a historian, as a curator, it had something to do with the passions that emerge when the individual experiences that perfect marriage to subject matter. And there's no guarantee of that happening in anyone's life. But, you know, we do see cultural figures who found the precise perch that they're supposed to be standing upon. You know, I could name pop cultural figures like Elvis Presley or Muhammad Ali or, you know, you name it, you know, any number of other figures who have taken on this iconic place within our culture. And there was no guarantee, you know, there was no guarantee that Muhammad Ali would find his way to boxing or that Elvis Presley would find his way to rock music or that Orson Welles would find his way to movie making, but they did. They did. And I think for Manley, maybe that process is part of what unfolded. He was just so primed and passionate for exploring and curating and analyzing the esoteric that when he discovered this material at a relatively young age, it just ignited some sort of pilot light that had been existent within him. And what emerged was this historic, extraordinary work that he created at a very young age. He peaked at a very young age, which can be very difficult for people as well. 
But this is why I'm always encouraging people to pay very, very careful attention to that which they feel passionate about, because there's more than meets the the eye. There's more than meets the ordinary senses when you find that perfect marriage of self to topic. And it doesn't necessarily have to occur when you're young. It didn't occur for me when I was young. I probably didn't. I probably was. um, I might have been well into my mid-30s by the time I even discovered Man and His book. I didn't publish my first book, Occult America, until I was past 40. So when you find that marriage of self to subject, it, it can be very powerful. Well, Manley considered himself a philosopher. His organization was called the Philosophical Research Society. And uh, as as you describe it, the idea of getting in touch with your own destiny, with your sense of destiny, uh, seems quite central to his overall philosophy of life. I find him more instructive in terms of his presence, in terms of his persona, in terms of what he teaches us by example about the marriage of individual to destiny, than I do the philosophy that he expounded upon in in his work. I think he was more successful as as a great expository writer and a curator and a kind of a historian. You know, I was uh, also uh, involved with the Philosophical Research Society for about 20 years. I uh, lectured there many times. I helped found the University of Philosophical Research. I was a dean there for for a long time. I never met Manley. I, I came in under the uh, aegis of Obadiah Harris. Uh, but my understanding is that many times people would come to visit Manly and they'd be fascinated by all of the esoteric symbolism and mysteries. And uh, he would often tell them the very uh, first thing they should do is focus on self-knowledge. Above all, it seemed as if he was constantly repeating the dictum of uh, Socrates in that regard, know thyself. It's interesting. I think you're right. And and I I think that's absolutely true. And I've anthologized some of Manley's writings that were more philosophical in nature. And I do think that he took a very back-to-basics approach. Sometimes, again, I have to say, I think when he wrote about civics and psychology, there was a familiarity. There was, at times, a repetition that I don't think always captured, saw, or addressed the life of the individual and all of its frictions and difficulties and challenges. And that may have been due in part to the post-Victorian era in which he was raised, where individuals did not have, nor were they taught or educated in, an emotional vocabulary. And I think he tended to avoid most intimate personal questions. It wasn't something that he wished to talk about in his own life. He had a first marriage that ended in in his first wife's suicide. He has a second marriage that I think had difficulty. I have no wish to press anyone on personal disclosure. Personal disclosure is not always necessary. But I would say, just just speaking for myself, 
In my books, I do engage in personal disclosure, and I do so not because I have any wish to be morbidly self-disclosing, but I do feel that it's important that if one is on the path of self-knowledge, as, as you've referenced, and that if, if, if a book or an article or an essay or a talk addresses itself to the challenges and the issues and the problems of self-knowledge, it behooves the speaker or the writer, him or herself, to be disclosing. Not to be disclosing about some sort of private details, but to be disclosing about one's own struggle, one's own trials. And that was something Manley never wished to do. And I personally believe that limited his flexibility as a philosopher. I've given some thought to the question of Atlantis. Manley wrote extensively about Atlantis being a great civilization that ended in tragedy. And in a way, as you describe Manley's life itself, it was like a, a great life full of promise, full of uh, philosophical elegance and majesty, but ending in, in a kind of a tragic way. I'm really glad you brought that up because I write about Manley's interpretation of Atlantis in this book, The Seeker's Guide to the Secret Teachings of All Ages. And the very point that you just made dawned on me as I was working on that book. Whatever one makes of the mythos of Atlantis, and I think there's probably a lot more there than 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 our contemporary culture has has come to terms with, or that our generation may ever come to terms with, whatever one makes of it, the typical takeaway, the principle, the the lesson, the 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 parabolic moral that that one receives from the Atlantis mythos is that Atlantis was undone by hubris. Atlantis, whatever it may have been, reached this place of development and you know, if if one goes by what appears in in Plato's uh, dialogues and writings, um, Atlantis committed the ultimate act of of hubristic foolishness, launching an attack on Athens and was destroyed. So the lesson that we are typically taught to take from Atlantis as a parable is that warfare and environmental destruction and and a kind of Tower of Babel sense of achievement is the undoing of a society. But I think your interpretation is better, which is that one has to look at Atlantis as a human metaphor, a metaphor for the individual. Because the truth is, very, very few of us are in any kind of a position to make decisions on any kind of a macro scale. And if we were in a position to make decisions on a macro scale, I doubt we would do much better than the first you know, 12 names in the phone directory of any large city or small town. Um, one has to try to internalize these lessons. And I think, as you were alluding, one of the great difficulties of Manley's life is that he he peaked at a very young age. I mean, again, the secret teachings of all ages appeared when Manling was just 27 years old. And although he did many, many significant things after that, including building this magisterial Egyptian Mayan Art Deco campus of the Philosophical Research Society, which first opened in 1934, which was added to 
including an auditorium in 1959. There were, were many, many things that could be said to Manley's great, great credit. But I don't think he was ever able to reach anywhere near that pinnacle of achievement again. And I think that in the years that followed, the decades that followed the secret teachings of all ages, many, many decades uh, of his life, the vast majority of his life until he died in, in 1990, I think that these were at times marked by a very serious melancholy and a difficulty and a sense of issuing another pamphlet, launching another lecture series, writing another book, putting out another issue of a magazine like Horizon or The All-Seeing Eye. And I think Peking Young, it presents a challenge for anybody. It, it presents a tremendous challenge for anybody. And I think for Manley, being a boy wonder, being a kind of child prodigy, made a second act very, very difficult. And I think it was difficult for him to find his way, to disclose that to anyone, to find colleagues or friends with whom he, to whom he could disclose that. And I think that created a great strain uh, towards the end of his life. You know, I feel a bit of a kinship uh, with Manley. Not only was I you know, involved with his organization for some 20 years, but my first book, The Roots of Consciousness, I started working on at the age of 27. And it, it was uh, something of a big hit when it first came out. Uh, and, and, and in fact, it, uh, I borrowed quite a bit of Manley's, uh, work and even illustrations in the roots of consciousness. So uh, there is that parallel. And I understand the difficulties of uh, the ups and downs of uh, a career, especially in the esoteric field. And as you point out, especially at a time when our culture has become so very materialistic and interest in esoteric subjects was at a low point when Manley started working. You, you mentioned that he would go to these great libraries and look for uh, exotic esoteric manuscripts. He has over a thousand references in the secret teachings of all ages, but the librarians there uh, uh, found that, you know, no one else was even looking at this material. Yeah, it's interesting. When Manley was writing the secret teachings in the 1920s, materialism was all the rage. And there was a prevailing mood in academia, which has lingered, you know, to some extent today, that matter created itself and that we did not need to trouble ourselves with the philosophy of religions. We could analyze religions for their social relevance. We could understand the unfoldment of religions as part of the march forward of the human situation, but that we were... Western society was emerging from a kind of triumphant sense of Victorian age Darwinism, a codification of the chemical table of elements, uh, benefits that societies experienced from Pasteur's uh, germ theory, um, the emergence of medicines and treatments and vaccines that would have been unthinkable a generation or so earlier. And there was a feeling in the 1920s, as there may be today, that materialism had triumphed. Materialism uh, 
we use not to refer to acquisitiveness, but to refer to the philosophical bent that matter creates itself. And it was religions, esoteric religions, symbolical religions, occult ideas were, were considered by and large within academia to be primitive ideas that belonged in museum cases, but that didn't hold any guidance or truth for the individual. And Manley's perspective was the opposite. He felt that the individual could not develop without being versed in esoteric and religious traditions, mystical religious traditions, by which he meant religion in, in general, by which he meant that which was at the foundation of all faiths that had come down to humanity in the early 20th century. So he did see what he was doing at this very young age as a pushback against the dominant perspective of, of the era that, that he grew up in. I think he also felt that this was authentic philosophy, that uh, if you go back to the early philosophers, they were all steeped in the esoteric culture of their era. And uh, I gather that Manley had a particular uh, affinity for ancient Egyptian culture and the philosophy that emerged out of it. Yes. And he also grew up in an age when there were archaeological findings in Egypt, in Persia, in Central America, the Mayan cities were, were still being uncovered anew. And to the Western mind, this, this could also seem to be a period of extraordinary discovery for all the materialism that prevailed within academia, within the arts and other reaches of the culture, there were, there was a sense of marvel at some of the archaeological digs and discoveries that were emerging from the sites of the ancient world. And that's reflected in the architecture of Manley's campus, the Philosophical Research Society in Griffith Park in Los Angeles, which is unfortunately closed right now due to the um, coronavirus uh, epidemic. But um, for anybody listening uh, who has been to that campus, they'll understand that it's, it's probably the most epic small space in America. It's a relatively small space. It's a cloister in a way, and yet it resounds with this beautiful neo-Mayan, Egyptian-styled Art Deco architecture. It's just magnificent, and it's a reflection of the wonder that the Western world felt as some, some of these ancient sites were being uncovered uh, at that time. Well, one of the threads that seems to run through uh, the entire uh, masterpiece, The Secret Teachings of All Ages, is Hermeticism. And Hermeticism, of uh, uh, course, goes back to ancient Egypt. I think we're living in an age right now at this moment where we are attaining a better and fuller and richer understanding of, of Hermeticism and, and how valid an expression of Egyptian philosophy, not just ancient Greek, but Egyptian philosophy, Hermeticism really is. Um, Hermeticism refers to a, an amalgam of late ancient Greek-Egyptian philosophy that was produced, written down in Greek, largely in the city of Alexandria in the decades immediately following the death of Christ. And at that time, in the late stages of the Egyptian empire, the ruling class was Greek. 
uh, Egypt had become a, a colony, more or less, of Rome, and the ruling class was was Hellenic, was a Greek-speaking uh, ruling class that descended really from Alexander the Great, who had uh, conquered Egypt uh, centuries earlier, and this Greek ruling class was left in place by the Roman uh, viceroy, by the Roman government. I mean, they were basically given the administrative rulership of Egypt. And so Greek scribes who lived in Alexandria, who were fascinated with Egyptian philosophy and antiquity, and Egypt was as ancient to the Greeks, the ancient Greeks, as they are to us, they began to write down some of the esoteric philosophies of ancient Egypt. And this is what later became rediscovered during the Renaissance and referred to as the, the Hermetica or the, the Corpus uh, Hermeticum, the Hermetic literature. And a generation or so ago, if we were having this discussion, prevailing view within scholarly circles was that, well, you know, this stuff was really Greek philosophy, Neoplatonic philosophy that made reference to Egypt, but that was Greek in nature. Uh, that was never a settled point of view, but that was a dominant point of view. And today that's changed. Today, most scholars believe that the Hermetic literature, Hermetic philosophy, is a kind of core sample of much older ancient Egyptian philosophy. And of course, this is part of human history. Religions build upon religions, philosophies on philosophies, structures on top of structures. You know, Notre Dame is, is built on top of an ancient pagan temple. I mean, this is how we as a human community function across epochs, across centuries. We build upon things that came before us. And as such, the Hermetic literature, although it has late ancient reference points, is, I think, justly regarded as a kind of a time capsule of ancient Egyptian thoughts, one of the only time capsules we have. And it's in our generation, really, that the validity of this literature uh, as authentic, as an authentic retention of Egyptian thought is being recognized, is being understood. And I, I will tell you, I think Manley's chapter on Hermeticism and the Secret Teachings is, is one of his finest. It's a good way. It's a good way to kind of get one's feet wet in, in Hermetic thought. And it's, it's one of the parts of the book that I think resounds most brilliantly. Well, in ancient Egypt, uh, you have, amongst other things, the uh, great mythological sequence of Osiris and his brother Set and the son of Osiris, Horus. It's a, it's a myth of death and rebirth, which uh, one finds repeated over and over again in different cultures, including Christianity. Yes. And, you know, apropos what we were just talking about, some of the early Coptic statues of the Madonna and child were reworkings of, of statues of Isis holding her son Horus. So the idea of uh, Horus uh, as the, the son, the offshoot of the great gods of creation who must redeem, rescue, and bring to humanity the news of a truth that has been obfuscated, that has been in danger of getting snuffed out. That's the story, in some ways, of, of Horus. And that story repeats 
in the mythos of Christ. So it's just one more way in which we see continuity throughout humanity's religions. Another idea that uh, seems to be paramount to the Hermetic tradition, and you find it, as you pointed out, in, in the Hebrew Bible as well, is uh, as above, so below, or human. we are created in the image of some higher reality. Yes, yes. Uh, that, that was the core principle of Hermeticism, the idea being that there is some higher central mind, the Greeks called it nous, or an overmind, from which all of reality emanates, and that we, human beings, occupy some concentric circle of existence that is as distant from this higher mind as other concentric circles of existence may be distant from us. We may be at a disadvantageous place um, in terms of the scheme of creation because we suffer, we die, we know limits. And yet we do have a relation to this higher mind, noose, as above, so below. Or as you were referencing, as it's put in Hebrew scripture, uh, God created man, the higher created the individual in its own image. So the principle that follows from this hermetic dictum of as above, so below is that we as individuals can create within the sphere that we occupy just as the higher mind created us. And that means more within hermetic philosophy than motor skills and cognition. But the idea is that the individual, him or herself, possesses abilities of causation that are born through the intellect. And to a lot of contemporary people, that sounds like philosophies that we might know today as as new thought or mind causation. I don't particularly tend to favor the terms law of attraction or manifestation. I'm not squeamish about popular terms at all, but I just have my own points of reference for talking about those things. And Hermeticism has helped me arrive at those points of reference because Hermeticism also taught that as much as the individual is possessed of causative intellectual abilities, so we function within a framework of many, many laws and forces within the hermetic worldview. That's why I don't particularly like to use the term law of attraction, even though I don't run away from popular terms, because I don't like the idea of referring to us as existing under this one mental super law. It's not my point of view. It's not my experience. It's not my philosophical outlook. And Hermeticism helped me with that a great deal. I think another idea that uh, is central to the ancient Egyptian culture and gets carried on in various uh, threads or strands of Hermeticism is uh, a sense of oneness with nature. Yes, uh, a sense of wholeness, a sense of everything being reciprocally interconnected. And I think that's very valuable because I used to believe that if an individual went on some sort of a ethical or occult religious search, that person needed a set of guardrails. And my approach as to how to deal with that used to be finding your guardrails through some work of ancient 
ethical or religious literature, whatever it was, whether it was the Beatitudes or the Bhagavad Gita or the Dhammapada or the meditations of Marcus Aurelius, some, some, some hallowed piece of esoteric or religious or ethical literature so that one would have a set of guardrails. I don't really feel that way anymore. I think what matters more is that the individual possess a sense of reciprocity or what might be called karma in Vedic tradition, which really, again, has to do with this hermetic concept that you were referencing of a human wholeness. And if one really believes that there is a profound interconnectedness among individuals, and this is one of the reasons why, as we were discussing last time we did the show together, I value ESP research and psychical research, research into non-local intelligence so much, is because that really begins, I think, to reveal to us some of the outlines in, in however fragmentary a way of the non-local existence in which we all participate. And if one takes that seriously, then it stands to reason that human wholeness is not just some pretty idea, but that it's a literal idea and that there are hidden tendrils that connect us that we might refer to as non-local intelligence, that we might refer to as some kind of noose or overmind. It's not altogether clear what these hidden tendrils are, but that they are, that they are, is something that psychical research in the 20th century has done something to to define. Even if we just capture these things in a fragmentary way, they affirm to us that that the idea of human wholeness is not, again, just a a kind of universal... not just a not just a a, a a pretty sounding idea, not just a salve uh, for difficult times, but is something that's literally true. One of the most fascinating aspects of the secret teachings of all ages, and I'm sure it's attracted many readers for this reason, is the idea that these lofty notions that are associated with Hermeticism became incorporated in various groups, the Freemasons, the Rosicrucians, the Illuminati, and especially in the 18th century, uh, the early 19th century, many of these movements were engaged in revolution in overthrowing monarchies that had been ruling governments in Europe in particular for centuries. Yes. It's interesting. You know, during the Renaissance, there was this a kind of occult revival. The term occult, uh, the Latin-derived term from occultus, meaning secret or hidden, comes to us uh, from the Renaissance. That term came into use in English, was fashioned into an English term uh, in the early 1500s. And there was, by about a century later, less than a century later, a backlash against the occult revivalism of the Renaissance. And it was from out of that backlash that some of the groups that you referenced, I think, came into being. This is something that is difficult for us to get our arms around. I mean, we don't have exact evidence or records of any of this. So there's a certain degree of historical supposition that a person has to engage in. But I think, and and I think this is supportable based on 
diaries and some of the earliest references to the organizations you just mentioned, Freemasonry, the Rosicrucians, the Illuminati, which was a kind of a renegade Freemasonic movement in the 1700s. I think these groups emerged from the aftermath of this backlash that that occult revivalism eventually met with in the Renaissance. And part of this backlash uh, resulted in what we today call the Thirty Years' War, which was a war that just absolutely tore apart Central Europe in the first half of the 1600s. That was the English, uh, that was the German-speaking part of Europe where occult revivalism was very pronounced. And the Thirty Years' War, which went from 1618 to 1648, was just absolutely devastating to to that German-speaking stretch of of Central Europe, roughly from the Rhine Valley in the west to uh, Prague and Bohemia in the east. And so from out of that, that ferment, from out of that destruction, I think there probably emerged some of these so-called secret societies, Freemasonry, Rosicrucianism, Illuminism. And their aim was to keep alive some of this occult and esoteric revivalism, but also to push back uh, against the church-state compact that had caused this backlash to begin with. So you start to see Freemasonic organizations extolling values of separation of church and state, for example. Uh, you see the Illuminati extolling the perspective that uh, aristocratic position and bloodline should not result in an individual rising automatically to positions of authority, to positions of governance, to administrative positions in a society. Rosicrucianism, which emerges in, in Germany in the years just before the Thirty Years' War, extols the idea of public colleges, public education, public hospitals, radical ecumenism. And these things, these ideas, took root in the American colonies through the influence primarily of Freemasonry, which claimed among its members a number of the nation's founders, including George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, Paul Revere, John Hancock, an outsized number of signers of the Declaration of Independence, an outsized number of framers of the Constitution, an outsized number of Washington's generals. This is real history. This is not speculation. You know, these, this is where we start to get into actual records and, and ideas and lineages that we can place our arms around. And I have to say to Manley P. Hall's great credit, he was writing about this in the first half of the 20th century at a time when most historians just absolutely ignored this stuff. Again, it's only in this present generation that academic historians have come to acknowledge the authentic role of Freemasonry as an influence among some of the founders. And I, I write about this in The Seeker's Guide. I write about this other places. It's very, very important to understand that in the colonial age, America, through much of the 19th century, America was just an incredibly rural, agriculturally based place. There were very, very few hospitals, universities, libraries. So when a person had a fraternal tie, such as to Freemasonry, that was an enormous element of his life. This was a very rural society where you had church, 
farm, business, some public houses, some grange halls, things of that nature, very, very little else, very, very little else. So if you took a lifelong oath to a group like Freemasonry as an adult, you were taking a really formative step in your life. So when we reference some of the framers and founders being Freemasons, you can only fathom how significant a tie that must have been in a very agricultural, rural-based country where there were precious few cultural institutions, guilds, organizations to belong to. There was church, there was agriculture, there was business, there was family. That was largely it. And so these ties were formative ties. And the fact that you find within Freemasonry a radical ecumenism, the belief that as long as you pledge fealty to one creator, you can belong, at least in principle. That wasn't always abided by in practice, but in principle. Uh, belief in separation of church and state, belief that uh, democracy and civic institutions, albeit of a less developed form, should prevail in, in, in our public life. These things sound ordinary today, but they were very radical positions in the 16 and 1700s. And I believe these positions were articulated and bolstered in some of their earliest form pre-enlightenment by some of the so-called secret societies that emerged from the uh, occult revival of the Renaissance. And, and you find this expressed in things like the uh, symbolism on, on the reverse side of the Great Seal of the United States. That's right. We have on the reverse side of our dollar bill that wonderfully mysterious eye and pyramid with the Latin slogan around it, annuit septos noos ordo seclorum, which can be loosely translated as God smiles on our new order of the ages. It's not a leaf directly out of Freemasonry, but I think it is inspired by Freemasonry. And that image of the Iron Pyramid does have precedent within Freemasonry. And I think that's a Masonic inspired image that appears on the back of the dollar bill that everybody recognizes. It's very recognizable today, but it wasn't always so, although that was adopted as the reverse of the great seal of the American Republic. Uh, in in 1781, it, uh, it it wasn't a symbol that was recognizable to most individuals until about 1935, when it appeared for the first time on the back of our dollar bill, and it was put there by two Freemasons, uh, President Franklin Roosevelt and his Secretary of Agriculture Henry Wallace, a remarkable man who later went on to become Roosevelt's second Vice President before Harry Truman. Truman, by the way was also a Freemason. So Masonry did play a very significant role in our civic life for a long, long time. Uh, the interesting thing is uh, these days, and I think we need to address it, is, is the idea that there are many conspiracy theories that look to Manley Hall to kind of uh, derive the idea that these esoteric societies have formed a, a kind of hidden elite that are secretly uh, in control of the world and uh, trying to establish a, a new world order that will be to the detriment of of everybody. This strain of conspiracism that you were just describing runs like a perpetual thread throughout American life. Uh, in some regards, it can be traced back to the 1820s, where there was an anti-Masonic scare that swept through the nation. People were afraid for various reasons that Freemasons were exercising influence within the legal system among police forces. 
And so there was a big pushback against Freemasonry starting in the 1820s in this country. There were anti-Masonic newspapers, anti-Masonic political parties. Um, President Andrew Jackson was elected. He was thought as somebody who was going to clean house. Andrew Jackson himself actually happened to be a Freemason. So there have always been these weird contradictions. But basically, going back to the 1820s in this country, there has been a perspective that Freemasonry and other secret societies represent some sort of nefarious hidden power center. Writings to this effect started to circulate in Europe after the French Revolution. They got revived after the Russian Revolution. There are all kinds of reasons, I think, why people have difficulty coping with periods of radical change. And it's easier to ponder what seems imponderable by attributing it to some hidden hand. So today, of course, our society is crisscrossed with these QAnon conspiracy theories, all of which bother me a lot because I think that conspiracism is really just man's perpetual search for an enemy. I don't personally think it's any more complex than that. And I push back against this notion that conspiracism as it exists in American life today, as it's existed in American life in the past, has some unique, exceptional thing about it that we have to really understand and dissect and pick apart, or you know, maybe it represents something unique to our times. I don't personally think that's true. Again, my definition of conspiracism is very simple. It's a habitual strain of thought that is in perpetual search of an enemy, and it finds an enemy. Usually it finds an enemy among entirely innocent people, whether it's witches who were burned at the stake in, for many centuries in Europe during the witch craze, whether it's the satanic panic that swept across this country in the 1980s where entirely innocent people were implicated in ridiculous crimes that had no basis in reality, while at the same time, in fact, in fact, there were vast instances, episodes, incidents of pedophilia playing out within mainstream organizations, including the Boy Scouts of America, including the Catholic Church, that no one at the time was talking about and that we know about today because of survivor lawsuits. And yet this satanic panic found its enemy among entirely innocent people who were not involved in any of the lurid crimes that were dreamt up in connection with these fantasies. And to me, that's generally the ultimate outcome of, of conspiracism. It's the search for an enemy and the finding of an enemy, usually among innocent and helpless people. When you're getting, uh, putting your finger on something central to human nature itself, I mean, we're descended from the primates and our closest cousins, the chimpanzees, for example, can be very aggressive with each other from time to time. And the human need to, to have an enemy, the human need for aggression, is something I think that has been addressed from time to time in the various esoteric traditions, because in order to achieve higher consciousness, you have to work through that. Yes, yes. There is something that is pruriently satisfying to people about having an enemy. It projects all of my traits, my negative traits, onto somebody else. It is unifying. Yeah, there's a protectiveness in feeling that 
my community is somehow closely knit by definition of who it excludes. Freud wrote about this in his essay, Civilization and Its Discontents. I think one of the greatest things he ever wrote. He theorized that the making of civilization is often an act of exclusion. Who do you want to get rid of? Who's the bad guy? Obviously, that's not all it is. There's technology, there's hygiene, there's perpetuation of culture, there's education, there's all kinds of things that are necessary to building what we would call a civilization, but an aspect of it is who do you exclude? Who do you get rid of? And you see this in most in its most naked display within fascistic or authoritarian politics. There's a certain degree of pageantry, there's a certain degree of nationalism. There is a atmosphere and a culture that hinges upon closing ranks. Who are we excluding? Who are we getting rid of? There's something very, very reassuring to the human community to viewing life in that way. And so when organizations seem to be secret or clandestine or they have as part of their basis occult symbols, it can be feel very dramatic and very exciting and almost entertaining in a certain sense to speculate over all the bad things that these groups are supposedly doing. Whereas, of course, we allow off the hook all kinds of institutions that might be making life very, very difficult, horribly difficult for people in ways that are not necessary and that can be fixed, like our wonderful private health insurers, you know, who who put people through all kinds of grave difficulties and stresses to receive benefits that they paid for, that they are entitled to. And 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 we have, uh, if I may, um, a private healthcare system in our country right now that relies for part of its profit-making apparatus on paying out fewer and fewer claims as a percentage of its overall economics. It's necessary to the growth of that industry. So instead of talking about that, which seems to be boring to a lot of people, even though we all suffer under its onus, uh, people like to talk about you know, mysterious secret societies, which uh, play no role in any of this, but, but, but prove to be more entertaining. My sense of the secret societies, to the extent that they adhere to a, what I would think of as an authentic hermetic thread is, is that it involves, you know, the Socratic dictum of know thyself. I recall visiting, for example, the uh, Rosicrucian Museum in San Jose, California, where they had the private rooms where the initiates go and, and, and to meditate. And you sit in that room and what they have is a mirror. You look at yourself in the mirror. Yes. And you'll find chambers like that within Freemasonic lodges. I'm not a Freemason myself, but I, I speak at a, a fair number of Freemasonic lodges, um, sometimes remotely nowadays, given given our pandemic. But I'm heartened that there is a a fraction of folks within Freemasonic lodges today who are very interested in reviving and strengthening that esoteric tradition that you were just making reference to. Freemasonry, to a very great extent, right now in the 21st century, and this has been true for a long time, is a charitable organization, a civic organization, a social organization, a social club. But to some of the younger uh, members, there is a hunger to uh, keep 
this flame going of esoteric study, which has been part of Masonic history. And, and I think that there are, there are lodges, there are magazines, there are newsletters, there are groups within traditional Freemasonry here in the United States that are very dedicated to that. And I'm encouraged by that. I think, I think it's a positive pursuit for the individual. It's something that, that has played a part in my life, even though I'm not a Freemason. Nor am I. I'm not a Rosicrucian or a Freemason or or much of a joiner at all. But I think we have a lot to learn from all of uh, these organizations. I regard uh, not just the esoteric organizations, but the world's religions as as part of everybody's inheritance in in the age in which we live. Yes, I agree. And I think one of the most valuable lessons an individual can can come to in attempting to walk a path of self-knowledge is the discovery and the realization, if you really try, of the terrible, terrible odds that are stacked against us, the terrible difficulties of the human situation. You know, I mean, we look, you know, we have enough great ethical literature available to us today, things that were nowhere near as as available in translation to people all over the world a century ago or two or three generations ago so that the world should change. You know, we have the Beatitudes and the Tao Te Ching and the Dhammapada and the Bhagavad Gita and the Hermetica, which we were talking about earlier, and the essays of Ralph Waldo Emerson and, you know, the, the meditations of Marcus Aurelius, you name it. We have all this ethical literature. and if we really participated in it, the world ought to change. The world doesn't change. And we keep doing the same thing over and over and over. Freud writes civilization and its discontents just on the brink of the outbreak of fascism in, in Europe. You know, it didn't change things, even though we realize we as, as seeking individuals can nod our heads and say, yes, yes, this is a real problem. But the realization intellectually of these difficulties doesn't necessarily instill change within the individual. And I think circling back to Manly P. Hall, I think that was one of the difficulties that Manly faced at the end of his life. And I read about this in my book, Cult America. You can spend your whole life orienting yourself as to the ethical systems of different religious traditions. You can imbibe classical philosophy as as an intellectual act and dedicate your entire life to it, but there is some brokenness in human nature that doesn't allow this material to penetrate us, to penetrate me in a way that really authenticates a change within my life. And that is one of the central central mysteries of human nature. If I sit in an armchair and I read the Beatitudes and nod my head and say, yes, exactly right, exactly right. For all that, and however many times I have that experience, I'll go out into the world and behave violently or behave in a way that is deeply negative towards another person that doesn't demonstrate any empathy towards another person because I'm scared or whatever it may be. The failure of this material to penetrate the individual is the mystery, to my mind, of human nature. And if you embark on a true path of self-knowledge and realize that 
grave, grave disadvantage that we face. And if I'm willing to face it in myself, willing to acknowledge it in myself, willing to realize the severe rupture between agreement and action, we begin to see the, the gravity of the human situation. And I think it's very serious. Mitch Horowitz, this is an interesting note to end on. I understand the seriousness of, of the situation, and yet I seem to feel that we can't stop trying. Even, even if at the end of the day, we're doomed to tragedy. And in, in fact, as I think about it, you know, the greatest uh, literary art form is tragedy. And, and what makes it so great is, is the idea that in, in the face of horrible odds, sometimes individuals rise to uh, great heights of nobility. There is no question about that. And I'm a believer in the, I'm a believer in human aspiration. I'm a believer in human aspiration. And arguably, Although I'm not sure, things have gotten better in a variety of ways in terms of economics and education and lifespan. And whether we, as a, uh, in terms of our psyches, have gotten better, have progressed in some way, I don't know. But I do believe in human aspiration, and I do believe that the life of the individual uh, can expand in ways that perhaps are not at all predictable. Uh, and that's predicated on effort. Well, Mitch, thank you so much for being with me. This has been a very stimulating conversation, and I look forward in the future to many more conversations with you. I think you have a lot to offer the New Thinking Aloud audience. Well, thank you so much. And it's, it's very meaningful for me to participate in these exchanges with you. And it's uh, been wonderful to be here. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us.